Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. And when I saw an article on the United Methodist Church website describing what they believe about the Bible, and it was written to Adam, by Adam Hamilton, I was instantly drawn to it because he's such a good communicator. So I wanted to read what it said. And I have this in the top of your outline. This is not the complete response by him word, by, word for word because that would take too long, but I just have shortened it up a bit. This is what he says about the Bible and the trustworthiness of the Bible we hold in our hands. People ask me if, I, if you have to read the Bible literally. Well, that hinges on what parts of it you are reading. When you go to Genesis, Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden, those are archetypal stories. Those are not the stories of actual ancient people who lived thousands of years ago. They're trying to tell us about ourselves. We don't read those stories literally. We are Adam and Eve. We don't believe they are literally true. And take the story of Jonah being swallowed by a, by a whale. That story is meant to be read prophetically, not literally. Did it really happen? I'm okay if it did, but that is not the point of the story. When it comes to the Gospels of Jesus, we read them more literally, but even then we can't read the Gospels completely literally. So depending on what part of the Bible we're reading, we read it more or less literally. What do you think? Oh, I guess you guys have been well-trained, so this whole message is going to be useless then. Uh, because uh, well, I want to go and look at this idea of how we read the Bible, how we, we trust the Bible. Is the Bible completely true in all that it says and does? When it talks about people like Adam and Eve and Noah and Jonah, were those real, literal, historical people? Were the events that we read about in their life the things that actually happened? Or should we do like many people, such as Adam Hamilton, and a large part of Christendom says, well, we just want to look at the storyline. We don't want to get caught up in the, the facts. We're going to answer that question this morning. I'm going to give you, hopefully, a very good answer and a very solid answer for how we read and treat this, this book. Now, we are studying our way through 2 Timothy. And uh, last week, we were in verses 16 and 17. We finished up there. I'm going to read those verses again. I have them in your outline for you. It says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, last week I told you those verses are foundational for how we as Bible-believing Christians handle the Word of God. We believe, it just as it says here in the very beginning, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All the Scripture, this entire book, is God's literal Word. And I said this is such a foundational truth that we wouldn't just teach about it last week, but we'd use that, those verses as a launching pad to talk about this topic more extensively this week. And that is what we're going to do. 
look at this idea of how much we can trust our Bible, literally the very words of our Bible. And to do that, I put together six questions. And the interesting part was when I wrote this down in my manuscript, my manuscript's the normal size of a normal sermon, but my outline ended up being double the size. So don't freak out. But the reason it's a double size outline is because I have a lot of evidence for you. So you can go back and look at this and be confident of what we're talking about this morning. So here are the six questions we're going to work through. And we'll start with number one. What does it mean that all Scripture is breathed out by God? We see that is originally given to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. But I'm going to platform off of Hebrews chapter 1 to teach more about that. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The writer of Hebrews is telling us how God speaks to us. And he refers, first of all, to the Old Testament. He says, in the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets to us. And he did it in many different times and in many different ways. I wrote down some different ways that God spoke in the past. Through visions, sometimes it was an audible voice, sometimes it was through the prophets, sometimes it was through prophecy, sometimes it was through parables, sometimes it was through proverbs, sometimes it was through ceremonies. In fact, once God even wrote with his finger on tablets of stone when he spoke to us. Many different ways that God was speaking to us. But the key is that the entire Old Testament is not men speaking about God, but it is God speaking in many different ways through men. Understand the order of that. And the two bullet points I have here for you, the Old Testament was God speaking through the prophets in many different times and different ways. The New Testament is God speaking to us through his Son. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the story of Jesus' life. You go to the book of Acts, it's the story of the spread of the good news of Jesus. You go to the epistles and the letters, it's the implications of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. The point of the book of Hebrews is, the same point as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, is the entire Bible is God speaking to us. The Old Testament through the prophets, the New Testaments through Jesus. Now, let's look at the second question. Let's look at more what the Bible says about itself. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says all of the Bible is God's word. Same thing with Hebrews. The Old Testament and the New Testament is God's word. Now, the Old Testament, let's unpack this more talks about, it claims to be God's word, and it does this many times. So it is not just found in these two sections. Exodus 24 says this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken to us, we will do. The idea that God is speaking his words I did some research on this. This occurs 2,500 times in the Old Testament. It's just all over the place that the Bible is the Word of God. 
Now, when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament also claims to be God's Word. And by the way, the New Testament also claims that the Old Testament was God's Word. We can see this in Matthew 15. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. This is Jesus talking about a practice known as Corbin, which was people could dedicate their money to the temple so that it would go there after they died. And by that, they would sort of skip out on their obligation to take care of their elderly parents. And they'd sort of jump and just ignore the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and mother and take care of them. Oh, I, I would help you, mom and dad, but my money is really dedicated to God. He said, what are you doing? You're violating the very word of God. I did a little search in my computer concordance. Over 40 times in the New Testament, 41 to be exact, the New Testament itself claims to be the words of God. Jesus also claimed that he spoke the very words of God. For instance, in John 3.34, Jesus says this, He whom the Lord has sent utters what? the words of God. The apostles, the same thing. They also claimed that they wrote the word of God. This is God spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. He spoke through the apostles in the New Testament. Look at the way Paul writes this to the Thessalonians. Which you have heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. So the Bible is abundantly clear when it speaks about itself that this book is the very word of God. The Old Testament, God speaking through the prophets. The New Testament, talking about the Old Testament, claiming the Old Testament was the word of God. Jesus claiming he spoke the words of God. The apostles claiming they spoke the very words of God. So you get this consistent theme that this book is God's words to us. Now let's ask another question. How did God put his words into the mouths of the biblical writers? So if this is God's words written through people, how did God do this? First point, God put his words in the mouths of biblical writers by carrying them along by the Holy Spirit. We find this talked about in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. A few points for you. What he says here very clearly, the writers of Scripture did not write by their own will or speak their own words. Abundantly clear. Then the next point is this. Like a ship carried in the wind, the writers of Scripture were carried by the Holy Spirit where God wanted them to go, to speak only what God wanted them to say. The word carried along is actually a sailing term. It refers to what happens to a sailing vessel in a strong wind where it's just pointless to steer the vessel because the wind is going to take you where the wind wants you to go. 
And that's exactly a good description of what the Holy Spirit has done with the biblical authors. He inspired them and took them with their speaking exactly where the Holy Spirit wanted them to go. So they spoke exactly what God wanted them to say. Now here's where it gets interesting. Even though the biblical authors spoke God's words, exactly what he wanted them to say, God carried or God incorporated the biblical writer's personality, their background and experiences as they wrote God's word. So for instance, when David was a shepherd and David wrote the 23rd Psalm, he incorporates David's background experiences as a shepherd. But it is God who speaks through him exactly what God wants to say. And it's not just that God incorporated individual people's background and experiences when he wanted to say exactly what he wanted to say. He actually incorporated world events into what he wanted to say. Remember when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt? And yet the Bible says this whole slavery in Egypt was a type of our slavery to sin? That just as the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and there was nothing they could do to free themselves, so God needed to send a redeemer to bring them out and save them and bring them to a promised land? That was all orchestrated by God because we're slaves to sin. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. God needed to send us a redeemer, not Moses, but Jesus. And he is bringing us to our promised land. That was all planned out by God and incorporated into what he wanted to say. Now, since the biblical writers were writing God's words, this means the words they originally wrote were without error. Get that? In other words, if when the biblical writers wrote, if they wrote something with error, it was them speaking. It is only when the fact is God is speaking and God is pure, God is sinless, that means he says exactly what he wants to say without error. I like the way, by the way, we go to the book of Jeremiah, and this sort of describes how God works through the prophets and how God worked through the apostles. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. That's what we've been talking about. That's how this book can be called the very words of God. Now, let's get a little deeper into this. I want you to understand God wrote the words of the Bible, not just the concepts in the Bible. This is very popular today, where people will say that God inspired the ideas in the biblical author's mind. And then they said it in their own words, and their own words may be fraught with error. That's very common, but it's not biblical. By the way, Adam Hamilton, the guy I showed you at the beginning, he's in this group. Let's go ahead and look at this. Look at what the Bible says about itself. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. In other words, God's words are completely truthful, they're totally true, and they're absolutely without error. That is what he's saying. 
to give you an idea of how um, granular this is, I like to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. For truly I say to you, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. This is what Jesus is saying about the Old Testament. Go ahead and put that graphic up there. This is a little Hebrew up there. So you can guys get your Hebrew lesson for the day. And a Yoda or a Yod is the smallest Hebrew consonant. In Hebrew, by the way, the consonants are on the top line, the vowels are on the bottom line. And you can see the smallest Hebrew consonant looks like an apostrophe. The smallest Hebrew vowel, which is on the bottom line, is a dot. It looks like a period. I showed it to you there, I circled. So what Jesus says, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest consonant, not the smallest vowel will pass away from God's law until every single thing in God's law is literally totally accomplished. Now Jesus is saying that the inspiration of Scripture is not just the ideas of Scripture, it is not just the words of Scripture. It is literally every single consonant and vowel of Scripture is exactly what God said. And you can trust it down to that detail level. Now this brings me to what is probably my favorite point in this message, which is Jesus. What was Jesus' view of the Old Testament? If we can trust Jesus to save our soul, we should be able to trust Jesus and what he says about the Bible and how accurate it is and how faithful it is. Now, let's, this is the thing I'd like to do. I'd like to make sure that I hold the same view of the Old Testament and the Bible as Jesus does. That's a pretty safe place to go. Just to summarize this, to tell you up front, Jesus holds every single detail that he ever quotes or mentions in the Old Testament, whether it is a person or an event, as 100% completely and literally true. For instance, Jesus affirmed the authority of the Old Testament. <clears throat> Here's some great authority. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he rebuked Satan by quoting the authoritative word of God from the Old Testament. Think about that. Just quote the Bible and send Satan running because the words of the Bible are that powerful. Or when Jesus was charged with breaking the Sabbath, he quoted from the Old Testament to justify his actions. So it's not just when he was attacked by demonic powers, could he rebel them or push them away using the words of the Bible, but when he was attacked by people. Incidentally, by the way, Jesus recognized Moses, David, Isaiah, and Daniel as the human authors of biblical books, but then also turned around and claimed that God was the ultimate author of those biblical books. Jesus claimed every word of the Old Testament, he said, was flawlessly written by God. For instance, in John chapter 10, Jesus answered them, it is, not, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods of whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say to, of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said 
I am the Son of God? Or how about this next one? Jesus is arguing with the Sadducees. The Sadducees believe there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. They believe there is no life after death. And here's how Jesus proves to them there is life after death. He says this, I am the, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus says, the Old Testament doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a present tense verb. So all three of those patriarchs are still alive even though they've died. Do you get how authoritative Jesus says the Word of God is? Not only is it down accurate to what God says with every word, every consonant, every vowel, every tense of the verbs is exactly what God wanted to say. And you can argue for the existence of life after death based on a present tense verb. In one quote, that's authoritative. Jesus even told the disciples that they would guarantee they would all fall away from him on the night that he was betrayed. Why? Because it was written in the Old Testament. There's no way to not fall away. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep and the, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah 13, verse 7. Now, by the way, Jesus claimed every person and every event in the Old Testament was historically, literally true. Jesus considered Adam and Eve to be historically true. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus claims Adam and Eve are literal historical figures, and that God is the one who created the ordinance of marriage. Jesus considered Noah, the ark, and a worldwide flood to be historically and literally true. He says this, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Literally true. Now, Adam, Adam Hamilton, the guy I talked about earlier, Adam and Eve, now, now they're just an archetypal story. They're not literally true. You're disagreeing with Jesus. I wouldn't go there. Noah and the flood, oh, that didn't really happen. But Jesus says it did. You're going to be pretty gutsy to try and disagree with what Jesus says about some of these things. By the way, Jesus also affirms as real historical people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Lot, Moses, David, Solomon, Elijah, Oh, and what about Jonah? Remember Adam Hamilton said, uh, Jonah may or may not be literally true and it doesn't really matter. Look what Jesus says. Jesus affirmed Jonah and his three days in the belly of a fish, not a whale, by the way, a fish, to be historically true. But he answered them, 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Sorry, Adam Hamilton. It does matter that Jonah literally, historically existed. Because Jesus said he did. And Jesus said it was a literal three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Just as it was a literal three days and three nights, Jesus was in the heart of the earth. Not a figurative version of it. And by the way, literally the men of Jonah will rise up at the judgment and condemn that generation. Not figuratively the men of Jonah. It's literally, honestly true. Jesus also affirmed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire from heaven to be historically and literally true. Truly I say to you, he says, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So the truth is, fire from heaven did actually destroy these cities. Jesus affirmed that God fed a nation for 40 years with bread from heaven to be historically true. Now, sometimes people will say, well, that's not literally true. I mean, six days where God sent manna from heaven and then one day off a week where God didn't send it supernaturally? That couldn't happen. You know, where have you seen that in creation? You may not see it in creation, but Jesus says it happened. It happened just the way the Old Testament said it did. Six days a week it was there, one day it wasn't. John chapter 6, verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. By the way, Jesus claimed that his words are no less authoritative than the words of the Old Testament itself, which shows you the authority that Jesus claims for himself. He says in John 14, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Incidentally, the Old Testament says this about the words of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Look at the New Testament says about Jesus' words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So you get the idea that Jesus' words are just as authoritative as the Old Testament words. Now, the question becomes, how about the other writers? How did the other writers of the New Testament treat the Old Testament? Here you go. Paul considered Adam and Eve to be the first humans, and he considered them to be specially created by God, just the way the Bible says. For instance, 1 Timothy chapter 2, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. 1 Corinthians 11.8 For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. So Paul says that Adam and Eve were made. They were formed by God. 
No chance at evolution at all here, guys. Adam and Eve were special creations by God, supernaturally created by God. That's what Paul says about the Old Testament. Incidentally, Paul also affirms that Adam was formed first, and then Paul affirms that Eve was then made from Adam's side. This is literally true. This is not figurative stuff. No evolution here at all. Now, people often like to argue about evolution, and they try to argue from evolution from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Say, well, maybe this is, we shouldn't, we're misunderstanding the story. Maybe we've got it all wrong. Maybe evolution takes place. But when you go to Paul, and when you go to Jesus, the discussion comes to a complete end. Because both Jesus and Paul affirm that Adam and Eve were supernaturally created by God, did not evolve, they both affirm that Adam was formed first, then Eve was made from Adam's side. Now, here's the point I'd like to make for you. If that part of the creation story is affirmed as literally true, Adam and Eve were made by God, why won't we affirm the rest of the creation story as literally true? Why not? because we're buying into too much stuff from people like Adam Hamilton who say, well, no, these are just archetypal stories. This is just poetry. We're not supposed to take it literally. But Jesus did. Paul did. Every single thing that Jesus mentions in the Old Testament, he took as 100% literally true. Why can't we do the same? My friends, we want to have the same confidence in our Bible that Jesus had in his Bible. By the way, you continue. We've seen how Jesus considers the Noah and the flood is literally true. By the way, so do the other New Testament writers. They consider Noah and the flood to be historically and literally true. The writer of Hebrews says this, For by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. A worldwide flood literally happened. Peter talks about it twice. God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. All on the planet but eight people died. Literally true. Second Peter, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others. By the way, that's Noah plus seven others makes eight, same thing, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. All literally true. Incidentally, the New Testament writers also consider the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire from heaven as literally and historically true. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So, Sodom and Gomorrah literally happened. So you get this theme, that Jesus considers everything that happened in the Old Testament as literally, historically, 100% real. So do the other writers of the New Testament consider everything that happened in the Old Testament literally 100% historically real? 
The Old Testament claims to be the Word of God. Jesus claims to speak the Word of God. The apostles claim to speak the Word of God. Are you getting the fact that you can trust this Bible? Even the stuff that seems to be hard to believe in the Old Testament, just hold the same view about it that Jesus did. If he saved your soul, you can trust what he says about this Word. Now let's look at the last question. Can we trust what the Bible says, not just about the past, but also about the future? A couple points. First of all, since the Bible claims, since the Bible claims the people and events of the past are literally true, that means we should expect what the Bible says about the future will also be literally true. Jesus will return. Life will not go on forever. There will be a time of judgment. Jesus is the only way to be saved. That is literally true. Also, if we can trust Jesus to save our souls, we should be able to trust what he says about the past and what he says about the future. And let me give you one other one here. Since the Bible gives us prophecies that have been accurately fulfilled in the past, we should be confident that what the Bible prophetically says about the future will also be accurately fulfilled. Um, have a little fun with you here. We talk about the Bible speaking about prophecies in the past that have already been fulfilled. Let me just give you one. I'll tell you the story of it and you'll see how much confidence you can have in your scriptures. This is the story of the destruction of the city of Tyre. It comes from the book of Ezekiel, which is probably a book that most of us don't spend a lot of time in. Let's go ahead and read about the, this prophecy. It's in your outlines. Ezekiel 26, verse 2. Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Ah, the gate of the peoples is broken. It swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. And essentially, what Tyre is doing is Tyre is taking advantage of Jerusalem. Uh, Tyre, the city of Tyre, is mocking Jerusalem. And God doesn't like that. So God's going to promise to destroy this great city, which is taking advantage of his people. And this is what happens as we continue on. Therefore, thus says the Lord of God, Behold, Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea a place for the spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she shall become plunder for the nations and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. In other words, when you see this take place, what I have prophetically said will take place, and it actually happens, then you're going to believe that I'm the one who's large and in charge, not you. Continues. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, and with horsemen and a host of many soldiers. He will kill with the sword your daughters on the mainland. He will set up a siege wall against you, 
and throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. He will direct the shock of his battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. His horses will be so many that their dust will cover you. Your stones and timber and soil, they will cast into the midst of the waters. Notice that. I will make you a bare rock. You shall be a place for the spreading of nets. You shall never be rebuilt, for I am the Lord. I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Folks, that is some very, very detailed and precise prophecy that this city was going to be destroyed, it'll never be rebuilt, and it even says who will destroy the city, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, how was this fulfilled? Three years after this prophecy was given by Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar came and began to destroy the city. It was a siege that lasted 13 years. Now, you need to understand the way Tyre was built. It was actually two cities. There was a city on the mainland that was on the coast, but there was an island that was a half mile offshore, and that was also known as part of the city of Tyre. What Nebuchadnezzar did is he didn't have a sailing or a navy. He didn't have boats. So he attacked the city of Tyre on the mainland for 13 years. He cut them off and attempted to starve them out, battering rams and beating them. Eventually he got in and discovered that all the treasure of the city, all the wealth of the city was gone. They had shipped it by boats to the island that was a half mile off shore. So Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, left all the rubble there on the shore. Now, the prophecy at this point was fulfilled, but only part way. Because it talked about being the rubble being scraped into the sea. That hadn't happened yet. In fact, there was still the other half of the city on the island that was still continuing to exist. In fact, that island city of Tyre continued to exist for the next 250 years until along came a man called Alexander the Great. I think he was around 23 years old at this time. He had just finished in conquering Persia. He was on his way to Egypt. He said, I'd like some food. I'd like some supplies for my horses and my men. He's got like 30,000 men. And the island city of Tyre says, we're not going to give you anything. You don't have a navy. You can't come against us. We're just going to ignore you. By the way, if you know Alexander the Great, one of the things you don't want to do is get him angry. Because he said, well, I'm going to find a way to destroy you. And that's exactly what he did. It took him seven months, not 13 years. He took the rubble that Nebuchadnezzar had left on the shore and pushed it all into the sea, building a 200-foot-wide, 2,000-foot-long earthen, like, what would you call it, jetty, from the mainland to the island. Go ahead and put that up there, the graphic. You can see that construction. He went all the way out there. Now, the problem was, how do you actually get into the island city of Tyre? It has walls surrounding the whole thing that are 150 feet high. 
he had an idea. He built towers that were 165 feet high on wheels. Wheeled them on the, the little peninsula that he put out there. Wheeled them all the way out. They're 15 feet taller than the walls. Put down the drawbridge and let his men ride in. Conquered the city. Killed 15,000. Sold the remaining 30,000 into slavery. Now, all the rubble that was on the mainland was pushed and scraped into the sea, leaving it as a bare rock, just as Ezekiel had said over 200 years before. The island city was also pushed into the ocean, leaving it as nothing more than a bare rock. It has never been rebuilt, just as God said through Ezekiel. Every single prophecy of the past like this that has been spoken, it has been fulfilled with stunning accuracy. And by the way, this is just the city of Tyre. I could go and give you the details on the destruction of and the prophecy of Egypt, Nineveh, Babylon, Samaria, just to name a few. So if everything God has said prophetically that has already been fulfilled in the past has been fulfilled with 100% accuracy down to the detail of every letter why wouldn't everything that God has said about the future be fulfilled a hundred percent accurately down to the detail of every letter just as Jesus has said God's Word is a hundred percent trustworthy reliable and true and I hope that today you don't walk away when you see people like Adam Hamilton who says that sometimes we read the Bible more literally, and other times we read the Bible less literally. I want you to walk away and say that we always read the Bible 100% literally, because it claims to be and has proven to be the very words of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your book. Thank you that as we learned in 2 Timothy, that the whole book is your words, literally your breath. Accurate down to the very words, the very consonants, the very vowels, the very tenses, exactly what you wanted to say, 100% authoritative and true. So many times we spend our days looking at the internet, reading blogs, reading opinions, not really sure if those things are true or not. When we hold in our hands the Word of God, the one thing that is reliable and true. May we this week sink our teeth into your text and place great confidence in your Word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.